0: luminaries talking to the brightest minds in tech.
1: And my hope is that we come together to share more than technology and expertise and products, but that we share a vision of a future that is better than today, a vision of technology as the driver of human
0: progress. Your hosts are Mark Schaefer and Douglas Carr. Welcome everyone. To another episode of Luminaries, where we speak to the brightest minds in tech. This is Mark Schaefer, with my co-host Douglas Carr. And Doug, what an amazing guest we have today! Uh, it's going to be an incredible show, Mark. It's real. It's amazing. Um, Doug and I have been doing this show for about two years now, and as I looked over the biography of our guest, Sir Robin Knox Johnston. I don't know how to introduce him. (laughs) He's so accomplished, and he's done so many amazing things. I think the thing, of course, that really stands out is that Sir Robin was the first person to sail solo nonstop around the world. We're going to talk to him about his adventures, how he incorporates technology into those adventures. So, Sir Robin, welcome to our show. Well, thank you for having me with you. And what I'd like to do is just sort of let you talk about your journey how you got to where you are today and of course we want to spend some time talking about uh, clipper ventures and this clipper race ocean adventure but t- tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today and and fill our listeners in uh, on your highlights if they're not familiar with you
2: Okay, Mark. Well, um, basically, I went to a private school in Britain here, and by the age of 17, decided I wanted to go to sea. So I signed up for an apprenticeship in the Merchant Marine. And for the next uh, three and a half years, I was learning my trade. I then started taking the various exams we have, like second mates, mates, and ultimately master's certificate. So I stayed in the Merchant Marine for about 12 and a half, 13 years, But uh, during the course of that time, I was based out east in India, um, running between Bombay and Basra. And uh, while I was out there, decided quite fun to build a boat and sail it home at the end of my contract. Hmm. So I built my boat in India out of Teak and um, with a couple of fellow officers and uh, they pulled out. So I press gang my brother and a friend to come and help me sail her home. And we, said, we left Bombay, sailed up to Arabia and then down the African coast, <laughs> ran run out, run out of money in uh, South Africa. Uh, as one does. <laughs> uh, for, well, it was rather necessary to buy some food. And, uh, so um, we all got jobs down there. I was captain of a ship for a while and then Steve Adoring for a while as well. And um, then carried on the voyage, sailed home. And I went back to sea on one of our passenger ships, the Kenya. And while I was doing that, I saw Francis Chichester come back from sailing around the world solo, but with one stop in Australia. Mm. And that sort of said to me, hey, there's one thing left to do.
0: Uh,
2: <laughs> could, I, could I do it? And I, I came to the conclusion that uh, I'd never live with myself if I didn't try. So I, um, I wrote to 52 companies saying I've got this great idea. How about some sponsorship? And they all wrote back saying no. So I decided to go anyway. So uh, I took the boat I got. I didn't build the boat I wanted. I just took the boat I had, which is probably why I'm alive today. Mm. And how how old were you then when you did this? Uh, tw- I was 29 years old then, wow. yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So tell us a little bit about the, the clipper race, because this is really the – uh, I think the heart of what you're doing today and, and what we'll be talking about uh, on the show, it's, it's really quite an extraordinary event.
2: Well, the Clipper Race, it's an idea I got. I was up in Greenland mountaineering with a friend of mine, and he told me how much it cost him to climb Mount Everest, and it seemed an awful lot of money. And I thought, well, now what's the sailing equivalent? And I came to the conclusion it was a circumnavigation. And I thought, well, heck, there must be a load of people out there who'd love to do that but don't have enough confidence or not enough money to buy a boat. Supposing I supplied a boat and training and, you know, all the backups needed and offered it, how much would that cost? And I worked it out on the back of an envelope, and it came to about half what it cost to climb Mount Everest. Hmm. So I met up with William Ward, and um, we put an advert in the papers saying we were planning on doing this, got 8,000 answers. Wow. Once you get... Once you've launched an idea like that, if you don't do it, someone else will. Mm. So we said, right, we better go ahead with this. So in 11 months, we built eight boats. We recruited people, skippers, uh, trained up the crews and arranged a route around the world and started the first race. And really, the race is open to ordinary people who just want to go out there and do something extraordinary with their lives. So we say to them, look, you don't have to have any sailing experience. We'll train you. In fact, I have to say, in many cases, the people who've never sailed before, easiest to train. They haven't got any bad habits. <laughs> but, um, so we train them up, and we put them on the boats and with uh, professional skippers, and then we run a race around the world, calling at various places on the way. Now, we've been doing this for 23 years now, and we've taken some 5,000 people, give them really given them an experience for the lifetime. And it's fascinating to watch how they change. Um, you know, the 18 year old in a year, a year later is 24 in maturity terms, but even the chief executive of a company who's 60 comes back, just standing that little bit taller, they've <laughs> taken, they've taken it on nature in the raw and they've looked it in the eye and they've survived it. They have something to be proud of.
1: Unbelievably 40% of the crews are novices. That's quite remarkable. What kind of training is required and how long do crews train before circumnavigating
2: the entire globe? Well, Doug, the training's four weeks, uh, and that's compulsory. I don't care if you sail before, you do that training, because I want everyone to do things the same way, and that's a safety issue. But it's four separate weeks of training, starting with just introducing people to a boat, showing them what to look for in the boat, how it works... Get them out sailing as soon as you can, because that's what they've come for. And you want to keep their enthusiasm up. But at the same time, we're pumping information into them all the time. Then we assess them. We um, examine them. And some of them will say at the end of the first week, I'm never going to get the hang of this. We say, look, you've had to pick up an awful lot of information in just seven days. Don't worry about it. When you come back for your second week, you'll be surprised how much you learned this first week. And most of them do find that. By the time we finished with them, well, they're getting pretty good. I wouldn't say they're 100%, but they're getting safe, and that's the main thing.
0: So how does the the race actually work? Because it's not just a simply something like uh, the starting gun goes off, and you leave from Seattle, and... Uh, Uh, 10 or 11 months later, you're back in Seattle. It's, It's not that simple. So tell us about really the
2: complexity
0: and the logistics of this grand event.
2: Right. Well, there's 11 boats, and each can take up to 24 people. We don't usually sail with that number. We will do some practices. Practice race starts before the race, so they get into the hang of it. But then we'll set up a start line, fire a gun, and off they go. Now, typically, we'll start from, say, London, and the next stop will be in Brazil. Wow. And so they they sail away across the ocean. They get to Brazil. We uh, obviously are out there to meet them, check on how they're getting on. We run our own maintenance team just to make sure the boats are kept in one place. I've got my own race director who looks after the racing for me. And we'll then get them in, make them do some of the repairs, because we're trying to turn these people into all-round sailors. It's not just sitting back there and steering a boat all the time. They've got to learn everything that goes into into sailing a boat. That means the cooking, thinking about what stores you need on board, what food you need to buy, uh, making sure you don't end up with curried cornflakes all the way. (laughs) Um, You know, we do check what they buy just to make sure. But it's really a question of making sure when those boats restart, and we usually have a fairly tight schedule, they are totally ready and safe to set up on the next lake which typically might be to Uruguay. And so they'll go down the coast of Brazil and pop into Uruguay. And we'll do the same thing there, gather them all up. Some of the crew will change. Uh, some will uh, leave. Some new people will join. And then we'll start them off again as a group. And the next stop is Cape Town in South Africa. And so it goes on around the world. Then far Australia. Then we go to China. Then we go to the United States, through Panama, around the other side of the United States. Then we'll come back towards Europe, normally dropping in Northern Ireland, but not necessarily, but uh, quite often we do. And then we'll finish back where we started in London. So that's basically how it works. But it takes about 11 months. It's quite a long, long process.
0: And uh, the way the, the people actually win, they accumulate points through different segments and different challenges along the way.
2: That's right. Um. Mark, what happens basically at the end of the first race, the first boat to cross the finish line gets 11 points, and so on down the line to the last boat gets one point. Now, some boats get it together more quickly than others. Some look after their equipment better, which serves them well later on in the race, because we only give them one set of sails and say, you know, you've got to learn to look after these sails. So some will stretch their sails too much in the first leg and regret it at the end. And so things tend to sort of work out. But I would say by the end of the third leg, by the time we've got to Cape Town or Australia, we're beginning to see a trend. Who's doing well? And there's probably three or four boats that are really uh, up there at the top, one of whom will probably eventually win.
0: And. You talked about just everybody joining. I mean, literally. I mean, do you have like sort of physical requirements or some sort of test that people have to take? I mean, is this something that you know that I could do? I'm a fifty-eight market, fifty-eight year
2: old, you know, marketing executive. You're you're probably in the middle of our pattern, Mark. Oh wow! You you should be doing it. Um, <laughs> it's um, it, it's basically yes, there are physical tests, but they're pretty straightforward. Can you climb into that top bunk when the boat's heeled over? Hmm. Can you pull that sail up on your own? Hmm. Can you crawl underneath the main traveler? You know, these are all things that are just checking that you're going to be safe on that boat. We've had, I remember we had a 75-year-old lady and everyone said, oh, she's far too old. I said, have you met her? You wait till you see her. We had an American lady who was a pole dancer and she was in her 70s. She was brilliant one of the best crew we ever had. She was such a character, but it all varies between people. You know, the, the other older lady, I I warned the skipper, I said, watch it. He said, why? He said, that one takes charge. She's an alpha female. She may seem like a nice old lady, but she's tough as hell inside. You'll have no trouble with her.
1: Sir John, this is a podcast about technology and digital transformation. Can you tell us about the onboard communication technology and what it was like when you did your circumnavigation in 1994?
2: Well, Douglas, in fact, the first time I went around the world was 1968-69, and uh, that was nonstop. And, of course, one very simple thing you'll recognize immediately, no satellites. So there was no GPS. There was no satellite communication. Uh, we used single-sideband radios, very low-powered, If you could get through it, was a miracle. (laughs) And after two and a half months, mine broke down anyway. So for the next eight months, I had no communication. Um, So, yeah, that was quite funny because when I got back, after passing New Zealand where I saw some fishermen, uh, no one heard anything of me for four and a half months until I ran into some ships off the Azores. I remember a lady coming up to me and saying, weren't you worried when you were missing? I said, madam, I knew exactly where I was. (laughs)
0: Oh, but, uh, but your, your, your family must've been frantic.
2: Yes. I, I think, um, they covered up their worries, uh, pretty well. <laughs> um, but the, I mean, the four and a half months thing was, um, I, I met up with all these ships on Easter Saturday and all I had to signal them with was a signal light. Mm. Well, being merchant Marine, of course, I'm good at Morse. And I called up 18 ships and eventually got a British one, which responded to me. And, um, so now I'm sending a message saying, please report me to Lloyd's. And uh, he came back and said, yeah, uh, what's your ETA? I said, about two weeks. And that would be about 20 past seven on Easter Saturday. Well, my receiver still worked, and I listened to the BBC the next day, nothing on the news. So I thought he didn't report me. In fact, he did. My brother picked up the phone at home to be told I'd been sighted after four and a half months. But the funny story was delightful Welsh pastor in Falmouth, he was the missions to seaman, Padre, uh, who I'd got to know before I left. He was giving a sermon on Easter Sunday, and he leapt up into the pulpit and said, Have you heard the news? Rob Robin's been sighted. Most appropriate on the day of the resurrection. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so uh, talk about the technology today, because it's quite different, and... Uh, you have this partnership with uh, with Dell and this uh, rugged computer system uh, that they uh, that they're providing to you. So, talk a little bit about the importance of technology today. And you know, you, you've talked quite a bit about the, the the training and the safety. And it seems like technology plays a big role in all of that for the for the sailors of today.
2: Well, you're absolutely right. I mean. We have to move with the times. We have to accept what's available to us. Our boats typically have three different satellite systems on them now. So I can be anywhere in the world and call them up, um, wherever they are. It doesn't matter. Middle of the Pacific, middle of the Atlantic, I can get straight through to them on my mobile phone. Hmm. This is a big safety thing, of course. But it's a bit more than that because we've got GPSs, we've got satellite systems, we've got plotters. We've got our computers, which are fundamental to making these systems work. So if you don't have a good computer, you can't work them. And then, of course, the next thing is you've got a boat that's rolling around, being smashed about a bit, water everywhere. You've got to have a tough computer because otherwise they just don't last. I mean, there were times in the past when we've probably renewed all the computers during the course of a race because they've just collapsed. Hmm. And glad, glad, glad to say that's no longer the case. But it was the case in the past.
0: Well, that's 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 just amazing. And and when you really think about it, uh, it's it's amazing how this technology has has advanced. I mean, uh, uh, just to look at in, in just a few short years, in a few in a couple of decades how uh we've come to rely on this technology and how it's all integrated through satellites and and doug or uh, dell has this uh rugged computer system that could i guess it can withstand salt water and everything you can throw at it
2: well we we found these dell computers have really saved us an awful lot of time and effort what's more important they've kept the systems operating and that's absolutely fundamental but you know the are, there are bonuses as well that we get out of it for instance we can send film straight back from the boats. So friends and family can actually see film that was, say, recorded a few hours before because we can put it up on a screen and they can see it. Mm. Now, this keeps the families fully in contact with the people on board. But the other thing I've noticed, and you're probably seeing it more than I am, is that these days technology is moving so fast that this system we have on the boats one race is probably out of date two years later when we start the second race. Hmm. We have to replace it with new kit.
1: Sir John, the first leg of the race is from the United Kingdom to South America and starts in mid-August. Where can our listeners go online to keep up
2: with the race? Right, well we, um, we have our own website and people can log in on that. We have um, a, a, a race going on at the same time so people can play against our boats and see if they can beat them. We give them the same information. We give the boats the same weather information. So um, it it enables people to play the game, if you like, as well, see if they can beat the guys actually out there. Hmm. That's all on the website, and that always operates um, every race. People can just log into it. Just log into clipaventures.com, and you'll pick it all up.
0: Well, that's, that's, uh, there's, I've, I've looked at the site and it's, and by the way, I want to compliment you. It's a, it's a beautiful site. It's a very engaging site. And you just sort of dive into the stories. And I, I wanted to learn about each of the skippers and I encourage all of our listeners to check out the site. It's really a beautiful, beautiful site. There's lots of great stories there. I just sort of went down the rabbit hole and started to uh, read about all the skippers and all the places that they that they stopped and one of the things i was thinking about this is sort of changing up the conversation a little bit i was trying to compare this event to other global sporting events and it seems to me that i couldn't think of another event sir robin that really brings unity and peace to the world like this one and I'll tell you what I mean so let's say the olympics well to be an olympian you've got I mean you've you've got to train for years and years and years you've got to be a freakishly talented person even something like let's say the tour de france you've got a to tour you've got to train so hard and it's sort of contained to to france but this is an event that travels around the world and many different types of people from many different walks of life can get together. And I think I've read you've had – how many countries are represented so far?
2: Well, the last race we had 44 different nationalities.
0: So So you've got 44 nationalities. Mm. They're on these boats for months at a time. They're learning to get along and and learning about each other. And it's not – Elitist. I mean, you've got to have some money, obviously, to do it. But it's not like I couldn't do it, or you know, someone from some other country couldn't do it. So I, I'd just like to talk, have you talk a little bit about this idea of 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 peace and unity that is coming from this race?
2: Well, that's a very interesting point, actually. Um, I put it to you this way: when you're in a small capsule, probably no bigger than the space station, and you've got 20-odd of you in there, you've got to get along. Mm-hmm. You don't have a choice. Um, and, you know, normally, if someone's got the character which doesn't mix in, we've probably weeded them out before it starts. You just say, look, you're not right for this. It's not going to work. There's your money back. Go away. <laughs> but You're, you're, you're going to ruin it for everyone else. Mm-hmm. So um, we try and... Do that, and we get a lot of feedback from our skippers too, as they train people up. And we are watching this all the time. We get we get people to write feedback forms, and we also write our own forms on them. So we're building up a picture of the seven hundred odd people we're going to be sending off mm. on the next race, for instance. We're building up quite a lot of information on them, and we have to do that to make sure that they are going to get the most out of it. But you know when we call in all these countries with our mixed crews? Um, you know, you've got Australia, China, United States. What, what's the message we're saying? We're saying, hey, anyone can do this if you want it. Mm. You've got to want it. You've got to have the enthusiasm to do it. But if you really want to do this, it is within the possibility for you to do.
0: And I just think, I mean, one of the, it's just a wonderful message that uh, really uh, comes across when you look through your site that, this is really a world event. It's a it's a it's a global war, world event. And the thing that I just loved about it is is the accessibility of the event. It's not that you have to be a premier athlete or you have to be a PhD scientist or you have to you know be able to even withstand the high altitudes of uh, Mount Everest or something like that. But it's like you said, if you if you have the will and you desire and the desire. You bring people together in really an exceptional and unique way. And so I just, I just congratulate you for that.
2: Well, do you know, Mark, one of the most interesting things we've done recently is we managed to get sponsorship for some kids from the townships in South Africa. Mm. Now, some of these kids have been in gangs, been shot, knifed, and all the rest of it. And we put these kids on the boat, one at a time, on a boat, on their own, with all the other guys in the race. And they had to do the same training. So we made them safe and just put them on the boat. The results have been quite phenomenal. We've now got the first black South African to get his yacht master's certificate, one of ours. A young lady who was on the race, game from a township, I think Soweto, currently at university doing a law degree. In every single case, they've realized they they're working alongside successful people, been able to pay to do this, and they look at it and say, hey, I'm as good as him on this deck. Why can't I, why can't I be as good at something else? Mm-hmm. One of them, I think he was a gang leader, came back and said, that's it. I'm going off to learn to read and write. Um, I, I realized I can do more with my life. You know, we've turned a drain on society into a contributor to society. And if I'm proud of anything we've done with Clipper, I think I'm probably most proud of that.
1: That is such an inspiration. Thank you. Uh, Sir Robin, you've spent 50 years of your life on the sea, and much of that was time that you did it alone.
0: What was the scariest moment that you faced? That's the, that's the question every listener wants to hear, Sir Robin. <laughs> when were, what, what was the time that you, you,
2: it was just it was dauntingly scary? Um, well, I'll start off, I'll preempt that by saying, look, the person who says they're never terrified at sea is either a bloody liar or inhuman because there are times when you see one of those big waves in the North Pacific or the Southern Ocean coming towards you, and we're talking about waves that can be almost 30 meters high, and when they're breaking at the top, like you see waves coming in on the beach, they're very, very dangerous, and they can smash a boat, roll it, dismast it, sink it. So anyone who says they're not a little concerned when they see that wave coming towards them is just not being honest. I had a couple of occasions... um, Before I really learned to handle my boat properly in the Southern Ocean, I thought she was going to get smashed by the waves hitting her. And then I came on an idea and tried it, and it worked. And from then on, my boat was comfortable. But another occasion, I was on deck. It was blowing very hard. I'd just been trimming some sails down even more. And I got a huge length of rope out the back to steady the boat. And I looked in the direction from which the waves were coming and realized this one was going to break over the boat and i was on deck
0: mm-hmm.
2: and that means if that means when that hits i'm going i mean there's no okay. way a yeah. human can hold on against that force so i went i went straight up the rigging i went up the mast i mean I, it was too late to go down below where I was protected i went straight up the mast to get out of the way of it and the wave broke over the boat and for it seemed like an hour but it was probably only about 10 seconds there was, was just me and two masts in sight, and nothing else in sight for about fifteen hundred miles in any direction, and then the boat bobbed up, and everything's fine again. I went down on deck and went down below because that was the safe place to be. Wow, wow.
0: Well, look, uh, we could just go on and on. I've just been captivated. <laughs> and what? Well, have you written a book?
2: Yeah, I wrote a book about that first voyage. Oh, okay. Many- Many years ago, called A World of My Own. Okay. Um, That was published in the States as well. That's now in 12 languages. And I've recently written my autobiography just called Running Free, which has only just come out over here, just sort of talking about the other things I've done in my life, like spying on Iraq and a Uh, few other things I did in the Navy.
0: Well, we'll save that for our next episode.
1: (laughs) And of course, our listeners, if you'd like to keep up with the race, should go to clipperroundtheworld.com. And you can find out about Sir Robin's adventures and the race that we're talking about. That's clipperroundtheworld.com.
0: And we'll include that, obviously, in the uh, show notes, which will be available on the Luminary site uh, on at, at Dell. So thank you so much for this wonderful uh, adventure, this audio adventure today. Uh, It's been really amazing and inspiring, and we encourage everyone to learn more about Sir Robin and uh, his clipper adventures uh, at, uh, at at his site. So this is Mark Schaefer and Doug Carr signing off for now, and we'll see you next time on Luminaries, where we speak to the brightest minds in tech. Luminaries. Talking to the Brightest Minds in Tech, a podcast series from Dell Technologies.